Our text this morning as we hear from the living God and his word is Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 3. Now, earlier, Emily read the entirety of Hebrews chapter 11 up to verse 2 of chapter 12, but it is only verses 1 to 3 that will be our focus this morning. I encourage you to have your Bible open and available as we begin. The life of faith is the only life that pleases God. Three weeks ago, we were at the end of chapter 10 of Hebrews. The pastor says, beginning in chapter 10, verse 36, You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Three weeks ago, we said that to have done the will of God is to complete the life of faith. It is, as one commentator we quoted from explains, to continue in the obedience that comes from living in reliance on Christ and the salvation that he has promised, uh, provided. What the pastor writing Hebrews wants above anything else for his hearers is that they live by faith. For, verse 37 of chapter 10 continued, quoting from Habakkuk 2, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But the pastor concluded in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith is everything, brothers and sisters, because the life of faith is the only life that pleases God. Faith is therefore that upon which our salvation depends. Listen to how the Puritan commentator John Owen says it in his massive multi-volume commentary on Hebrews. It is faith alone, Owen writes. It is faith alone, which from the beginning of the world in all ages hath been the only principle of living unto God, of obtaining the promises, of inheriting life eternal and doth continue so to be unto the consummation of all things. Spiritual life is by faith, and victory, and perseverance, and salvation. So also they were from the beginning. It must come as little surprise, I think, that the pastor writing Hebrews turns now in his sermon to an extended focus on the matter of faith. Through the centuries, Hebrews chapter 11 has been one of the most loved portions of Scripture. I thought it important this morning as we begin our study of this great chapter that we hear it read at least one time in its entirety. I wanted us to hear again its poetic cadence. I wanted us to be reminded of its panoramic historical sweep. It is, by all accounts, a beautifully composed chapter. Its purpose is also clear. 
Hebrews 11 is designed to call its hearers to faithful endurance. To do that, it does not use the language of exhortation that we've seen the pastor employ at other times. Rather, it uses the testimony of the lives of ancient saints. Hebrews 11 surveys Old Testament history from the perspective of faith, showing how these early people of faith elucidate the meaning of Habakkuk 2 verse 4 that was quoted at the end of chapter 10. My righteous one shall live by faith. The chapter itself falls into two major sections, verses 1 to 31 and verses 32 to 40. In verses 1 to 31, the pastor lists individual examples of faithful people, spanning from the creation and Abel, the first example in verse 4, from there to the fall of Jericho and Rahab in verses 30 and 31. The fall of Jericho and the example of Rahab. And you could hear in the reading Emily did earlier how those words by faith introduce each example in this section. It is my intention, dear friends, to spend significant time working through the men and women in this part of Hebrews 11. So we won't go into any more detail now, but I do want you to see at the start the basic contours of this section, verses 1 to 31. In verses 3 through 7, the pastor provides examples of faith from primeval history, that is, from Genesis 1 to 11. He mentions Abel, Enoch, and Noah. In verses 8 to 22, the pastor provides examples of faith from the time of Abraham and the patriarchs, that is, from Genesis chapters 12 to 50. He mentions Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In verses 23 to 31, the pastor then provides examples of faith from the era that begins with Moses, actually Moses' parents, and ends with the conquest. So that is from the books of Exodus through Joshua. That's the first section of Hebrews 11 in verses 1 to 31. In verses 32 to 40, you may have noticed that the pattern changes some. The content continues on chronologically as these verses consider the time between the conquest and the coming of Christ. But rather than following the by-faith pattern that highlighted specific individuals, verses 32 to 40 amass great deeds of faith without identifying explicitly, at most points, the individual who performed each one. The single expression, through faith, in verse 33, covers the entire section. Verses 32 to 40 are, therefore, more of an intense review, if you will, of the rest of Old Testament history. And for that reason, our detailed study of the individuals in verses 1 to 31 will likewise give way to a rapid review and summary in the second part of chapter 11, when we eventually get there. That is something of the large-scale structure of the chapter, but before we now turn to verses 1 to 3, let me add one other thing I think is critical to know at the start. Notice to what point 
This entire chapter is designed to lead us. You probably heard it in the reading. Through these examples of faith, the pastor intends to lead us ultimately to Jesus Christ. Doesn't he? Which makes sense, I think. We cannot come to Hebrews chapter 11 and treat it as though we haven't spent more than a year now considering all the pastor has been saying in the first 10 chapters. Having focused our attention at great length in this sermon on the significance of Jesus, our great high priest, we're meant to understand that the men and women of Hebrews 11, all of whom lived before the Son's incarnation, can serve as inspiring examples to us because they had a faith that anticipated a future we now know has been made available through the Son. Or, to put it in a way that is perhaps too simple, but will serve our purposes for now, the only reason the faith of these Old Testament saints resulted in their commendation by God as verses 2 and 39 both say, is because of Jesus Christ. Listen again just to verses 39 and 40, the conclusion of chapter 11. And all these, the pastor says, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Think about that. For men and women of old, just as for you and me, it would only be through Jesus. It would only be through all we have considered in Hebrews thus far about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished that the faith of all those saints from the beginning of time would in fact lead to their great salvation. No wonder then that the climax comes not at the end of chapter 11, but at the start of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We rightly place ourselves within the company of the faithful from the beginning of time. But as one commentator puts it concerning all of chapter 11, these verses are not an ode to faith, as if faith itself possesses its own powers, so much as they are a reflection on the divine promise, the divine promise that engendered that faith from the very beginning, a promise that all along rested on its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This morning we take up verses 1 to 3 of Hebrews 11. These three verses serve as an introduction to the entire chapter. 
And just to help organize our thoughts some this morning, we'll consider those three verses under two headings. In verses 1 and 2, we'll talk about faith's reality. And then in verse 3, we'll talk about faith's focus. Faith's reality in verses 1 and 2, and faith's focus in verse 3. And then next week, we'll pick it up with the example of Abel in verse 4. First, then, is faith's reality in verses 1 and 2. As we said earlier, the study we did in chapter 10, verses 36 to 39, revealed that faith is a way of life. My righteous one shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2, verse 4 says. Yes, but then how exactly are we to understand the meaning of verse 1 of Hebrews 11? Now let's read it again in the ESV. Now faith, the pastor begins, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now so well known are these verses that it may surprise you, as it did me, to find out that their meaning is a matter of significant debate. Turns out there's a fair bit more going on here than perhaps first meets the eye. In the ESV and other major English translations, it appears the pastor here is attempting to provide something like a working definition of faith. We might think verse 1 could be the answer to the question, what is faith? But that doesn't quite capture the nuance the pastor intends. Instead of providing simply a definition of faith, it may be that the pastor here is making an assertion about faith. Listen to how the King James Version renders verse 1 and compare it with the ESV or with whatever other version you may have in front of you. The King James says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Now, if you're comparing that with what the ESV and many other current versions have, what you'll notice is that there are two terms there translated very differently. In verse 1a, instead of saying faith is the assurance of things hoped for, as the ESV has it, the King James says faith is the substance of things hoped for. And in verse 1b, instead of saying faith is the conviction of things not seen, the King James says faith is the evidence of things not seen. So, is it assurance or is it substance? Is it conviction or is it evidence? And what would these options even mean? Well, to start with, before we consider these lexical issues further, notice the content of the rest of verse 1. Verse 1 describes faith with respect to things hoped for and then to things not seen. So our initial question will be, what are these things the pastor is talking about here? Because we need to say something about that, 
before we then consider what the words assurance and conviction might mean. In verse 1a, the pastor says faith is the assurance, or substance, of things hoped for. What are those? Well, if you've been with us through Hebrews, it may be all I need to say, that all I need to say is that the things hoped for are ultimately the things that are entailed in salvation. Life with God in a place, the entrance into God's eternal city. Therefore, the things hoped for would also include all the promises of God along the way that create the path to that great salvation. Faith is oriented firstly toward the future of what God has promised ultimately to that eternal salvation, life with God in a place. We see this at various points in chapter 11. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, verse 10 says. Sarah considered him faithful who had promised, verse 11 says. Moses was looking to the reward, verse 26 says. So in the first place, faith relates to things we do not yet have, to things we hope for, to things that are promised by God but are so far unfulfilled, at least not fully fulfilled. So the things hoped for are the promises of God. Okay, but then there's another category of things related to faith in verse 1. Because in verse 1b, we read that faith is the conviction, or the evidence, of things not seen. Now, it's possible that the things not seen in verse 1b are the same as the things hoped for in verse 1a, since, in fact, we don't yet see them. But some scholars suggest, and I'm inclined to agree, that the things not seen in verse 1b are different than the things hoped for. That they have to do not with the future, but with the present. And that the reason they're not seen is because they are the things that transcend the material universe as you and I experience that. One commentator puts it this way. When the writer of Hebrews speaks of things not seen, he is thinking primarily about the power of God available for the people of God in the present. Faith is in some way related to the power of God now. In other words, faith is oriented not only towards the future, hoped-for realization of God's promises, it, it certainly is that. It is also oriented toward the present, unseen spiritual realities, the reality of God and God's power, especially. The pastor could be referring here to God's very existence, to God's providence, to God's fidelity, to God's power, Verse 6 of chapter 11 says, Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The examples we will study in chapter 11, the examples of faith, 
both experience God's power in the present, the things unseen, and anticipate receiving his promises in the future, the things hoped for. Faith connects us to both of those things in the lives of those listed in Hebrews 11 and in our lives. Both are part of what it means to live by faith. Think about it. The pastor has already made clear in Hebrews that we are to draw near now to receive the benefits of Christ's work in the present. Even as we hold fast in order to receive final salvation in the future. Faith is oriented toward both the present and future things. Because to live faithfully, we need both. We need both the power of God in the present and the promises of God for the future. But then, let's return to these two terms translated in the ESV as assurance and conviction. Verse 1a says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, the word translated assurance there in the Greek is the word hypostasis. And in fact, that word carries with it a number of possible shades of meaning. It can mean confidence or assurance, as the ESV has it. But frankly, that's not the usual sense of the word. Other options include guarantee, or attestation, or even foundation. Either of those could be argued to be the nuance here. Faith could be the guarantee of things hoped for, or the foundation of things hoped for. But though it's the hardest of them all to explain, and I may well fail in trying, I find myself inclined to understand hypostasis here in the way intended by the King James. I would prefer to translate it as substance. This would be like what the word quite clearly meant back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. There, the same word hypostasis is used to describe God's substance, his being. Pastor writes in chapter 1, verse 3, The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His, God's, nature. That's how the ESV there translates the same word, hypostasis. It's the description of who God really is, if you recall. God's substance. Well, as one commentator explains, on this reading of the Greek word hypostasis in chapter 11, verse 1, the point is that faith lays hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid. Faith itself is the substance or reality of things hoped for. In other words, there's a connection between them. Faith grasps or lays hold of God's promises so firmly that in the faith itself, 
there is something of the substance of the promises. Now, that cannot mean the whole of the promises, of course. The things hoped for still remain primarily in the future. But maybe, as we struggle to understand this, maybe a possible way to understand the meaning of verse 1a is that faith actually does taste those things, if you will. That by faith we get a real, substantive taste of the promises themselves, their true and actual substance. That faith, therefore, would go beyond just our internal attitudes, you see? Without denying that faith includes the subjective sense of assurance concerning the future, the pastor seems to be saying that it goes beyond just that. That faith, in fact, puts us in touch with the very realities that are hoped for. That it is itself, somehow, the substance of those things though not obviously the fullness of it all. Now, I get that this is all very rather nuanced and challenging to understand. I, I didn't even expect that this would be the challenge before us this morning. I've read a lot on it this week, and I'm still struggling to articulate what it means. But I think it's worth trying to struggle with it because I think there's something rich and wonderful here for us. I like the way one preacher puts it. Faith, he says, is a spiritual apprehending or perceiving or tasting or sensing of what God promises, especially his own fellowship and the enjoyment of his own presence. I mean, think about that. What is the core of the promise? It is life with God. Well, in what way do we experience that substantive reality now? pastor goes on, faith does not just feel confident that this is coming someday. Faith has laid hold of and perceived and tasted that it is real. And this means that faith has the substance or the nature of what is hoped for in it. Faith's enjoyment of the promise is a kind of substantial down payment of the reality coming. Now that's a lot to take in. That's how one preacher puts it. It's the closest I've come to trying to understand what this verse means. But it might be enough. <laughs> because even that much should change how we live, shouldn't it? If the substance of the things hoped for is in some way, even some small way, the reality of our experience now through faith, well, then we will find we have the assurance of those things in the future too, won't we? It's just that that subjective certainty that the ESV translation captures is present because of the objective reality that the King James translation captures. That's all about the assurance or the substance word in verse 1a. <laughs> in verse 1b, the word translated conviction in the ESV, but evidence in the King James is a different Greek word, 
the Greek word elenkos. And I think this one actually is clearer because elenkos is a term that typically refers to a legal argument substantiated by evidence. It normally means proof or evidence or attestation of something. At first, that doesn't seem to fit well, because then what would verse 1b mean? Well, it would mean, it would have to mean that faith is itself the evidence or the proof of something else. Here, the pastor says it is the evidence, if we go with the King James, the evidence of things not seen. Now recall that earlier I suggested that the things not seen seem to refer to the present power of God, the reality of God's existence and power and faithfulness and so on. I think that makes sense. Here's how one commentator puts it, quote, as the examples of chapter 11 show through trust in God, the faithful experience his power in their lives and receive his approval, and thus they confirm his reality. I think there's contextual evidence that this is right. Because when you look briefly down to verse 3, which we'll come to more in a moment, the pastor says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Which is to say, it was made out of things that aren't visible, right? What is the non-visible thing in verse 3 that created the universe? It is the word of God, the power of God. That's the not visible thing, or the things not seen, as verse 1 puts it. Faith itself, in our lives, as in the lives of those who are to be referenced in Hebrews 11, faith itself is the evidence of God's power at work, brothers and sisters. And it's a remarkable thing. And we can look back in history and see it in the lives of the faithful saints and draw encouragement from that. And we can see it in our own lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters around the world and be stirred up. God is presently active on his people's behalf. The pastor would have us live by faith that we too might experience this power ourselves and know this same confirmation. Does that result in a strong conviction concerning the things not seen? Yes, of course it does. But just as our subjective assurance is meant to rest on an objective substance, so too our subjective conviction of the things not seen is meant, I think, to rest on objective evidence. I think the objective side of these two words is what's mainly in view here as the King James seems to capture. Now, dear friends, <laughs> the point is that whether with respect to the future things hoped for or the present things not seen, it is faith that makes those things real 
to us. This is the reality of faith or faith's reality. Faith makes real to us things that otherwise would remain unreal to our experience. Faith presents to our hearts things that cannot or cannot yet be seen with our eyes. And we need this substance and this evidence in order to live by faith, do we not? I have found this week John Calvin's writing on this point to be extremely helpful. Referring in his Hebrews commentary to the paradoxical character of a demonstration of things invisible, Calvin writes this, quote, These two things apparently contradict each other, but yet they agree perfectly when we are concerned with faith. The Spirit of God shows us hidden things, the knowledge of which cannot reach our senses. We are told of the resurrection of the blessed, but meantime we are involved in corruption. We are declared to be just, and sin dwells within us. We hear that we are blessed, but meantime we are overwhelmed by untold miseries. We are promised an abundance of all good things, but we are often hungry and thirsty. God proclaims that he will come to us immediately, but seems to be deaf to our cries. What would happen to us, Calvin asks, if we did not rely on our hope? And if our minds did not emerge above the world, out of the midst of darkness, through the shining word of God and his spirit, and listen to what he says, faith is therefore rightly called the substance of things which are still the objects of hope and the evidence of things not seen. Or in other words, this is faith's reality. It is faith that makes the things hoped for and the things not seen real to us. Thus, propelling our endurance just as it did for the saints of old. Which is why the pastor says in verse 2, in order to indicate where he's about to go next in his sermon, for by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Faith was what it took to get them to that blessed point when they received their ultimate divine acceptance. The literal meaning of the Greek is that they were approved or accorded a good report. Such was the final witness of God concerning all the faithful that we'll consider in the weeks ahead. Such is the commendation the pastor desires for his hearers and for us. With time having left us, let me quickly now turn to faith's focus in verse 3. Because what exactly does all of this entail? What's the key? How does it happen, this reality of faith in our lives is connected both to the present and the future things? We've said that faith is a way of life. We've said that faith is what makes real to us the hoped for and unseen thereby bringing us to our commendation by God. Well, as we conclude the introduction of chapter 11, you may be asking yourself, but what's the essence of this faith? 
When you boil it all down, what is it, really? What's faith's focus? For that, we turn to verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, verse 3 is still part of the introduction, I think, because what the pastor says here is foundational still for all that is to come. You see this even in the structure of the verse, because beginning in verse 4, <coughs> the pastor will use the words by faith to refer to specific individuals in history. Here in verse 3, he hasn't started that pattern yet. It's we he has in view. By faith, we understand. What the pastor says here is true of himself, of his hearers, and of all the examples that will follow, because it's true of anyone who has faith. What the pastor establishes in verse 3 is that the essence of faith is believing the word of God. Faith's focus, in other words, is always on the word of God. To put it another way, the word of God is the object of our faith. By faith, verse 3 begins, we understand. The very nature of the universe, the creation of all things, cannot be explained by evidence available to our eyes. Without faith, we cannot even explain the world in which we exist, the pastor claims. These words of verse 3 take us back to the first chapter of Genesis, of course, when God created the world and arranged its parts in a harmonious whole by merely speaking his word. This foundational truth is celebrated often in the scriptures, including in Psalm 33. Listen to Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And then listen to how the psalmist grounds those claims in verse 6. It's the same as in Hebrews. How do we know the word of the Lord is upright? How do we know all his work is done in faithfulness? It's because by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. It has always been the cornerstone of biblical faith to affirm the creative power of God's word. Beginning with the origination of all things. Because if it was God's word that created the world, dear friends, it will be God's word that will bring all things to their appointed end, including the judgment and resurrection. The term translated universe here in verse 3 also means ages. It is by the word of God that not only the physical universe came to be, but that the ages of the world have been ordered and will be brought to their climax. As we saw many months ago in the opening of Hebrews and have watched unfold ever since, the same word of God by which the world was created is the very word by which it is born onward to its fulfillment. Verse 
and it is all the work of the Son. In Christ, God reconciles to himself the world he created. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 explains that the same word of God which effected creation also effects new creation, recreation. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 verse 23 confirms that it is through the living and abiding word of God that we have been born anew. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 we find the focus of faith, the creative power and in Hebrews 11 verse 3, excuse me, we find the focus of faith, the creative power of the word of God. At the outset, we recognize the primacy of the divine word over the visible realm it created and are reminded that we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth, whose word is eternal. Brothers and sisters, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It is not the visible world of daily experience, but God and his word that constitute ultimate reality. To live by faith is from beginning to end to live in accord with the word of God, to live as if the unseen God and his power are the ultimate reality, which they are. The implications for our lives are without end, and we'll be considering some of them in Hebrews 11. Here's how one author says it as we close. If God's word was capable of creating everything, then surely that word is a sufficient ground for our hope. Indeed, if God's word was sufficient to bring all that is into existence, it is also sufficient to give me all that I need. This is how we distinguish biblical faith from the popular notion of faith as a leap in the dark. Faith is not blind trust, wishful thinking, a mere manifestation of a positive attitude. We believe the word of God because it is the word of God who made all things and who, as Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us, sustains them by his powerful word. Our faith feeds upon the word. Our faith grows strong from the word, rests secure in the word, and bears fruit from the word. Ours is a faith that sees by the light of God's sure revelation. For faith says with the psalmist, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.